You know, I, um, I rarely recommend movies, and it's probably because I rarely, I rarely see movies. And um, I, I will tell you, I saw, I saw this movie, The Insanity of God, uh, the other a couple, couple weeks, a couple months ago when it first came out, uh, one night showing theaters. And I thought to myself, uh, I think every believer in the United States needs to see this movie. Um, I was just wrecked. I mean, I, I, you know this, I, I cry a lot, but I think I cried through, um, I cried through like the whole thing. Because it, um, it just opens my eyes, it opened my eyes to the, to the reality which some of our brothers and sisters face literally around the world. And I think the reason why we don't think much about the persecuted church is because uh, we don't experience it, at least not in the, the ways that they do around the world oftentimes. And um, here's the reality, though. There's, there's a statistic that says 80% of believers that practice their faith face persecution around the world. You and I are in the minority by a long shot. Persecution isn't some rare occurrence. Persecution is commonplace and normal in the church worldwide. We're the ones oftentimes that are abnormal. I mean, even if you hear in news stories today, um, from the past couple of weeks, there was a news story coming out of, I believe it was Syria, where ISIS had taken over uh, this part of town where ISIS was involved in, and they took control of a bakery, and they rounded up a bunch of the Christians, and they placed Christian children in the bread-kneading machine and needed them alive. I don't tell you those stories like, oh, we feel so horrible. We should feel horrible. But that is the reality which brothers and sisters face around the world. And the way that they do not experience that suffering is if they renounce the name of Jesus and they don't do it because they know Jesus is worthy. The adults, the men, were burned alive in the ovens in that, in that bakery. Story after story, you hear of Christians being rounded up and there's a story of a Christian worker in the Middle East where uh, he had to watch his 12-year-old son have his fingers be cut off before he and his son were both crucified together. Women publicly raped and crucified the same. And for me, I read these stories, and I want to be honest, like, sometimes it just feels so out there and so distant and so far away that um, it's hard to... It's kind of hard to understand and comprehend, but I praise the Lord that he's been answering my prayer to give me a heart for the persecuted church. It's, it's real. Like, our brothers and sisters are, are in fact being persecuted, and I think sometimes in America we, we can forget that when we follow Jesus, like, when we, follow, when, we, when we decide to give our lives to Jesus, we turn from sin and confess him as Lord. Like what we celebrated last week, amazing, right? Baptisms, amazing. But what we are committing to in that is that we are laying down our entire lives for the one who gave his life for us. Following Jesus isn't about adding Jesus to our old life to make it a little bit better so we can live happily ever after. Following Jesus means he's given it all for us and we lay down our life for him because he's worthy of it. The Apostle Paul, he's addressing this confusion with, uh, with this idea of persecution actually to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. They, they had this understanding that like, cool, we're going to follow Jesus and it's going to be easy. It's going to take away all my problems. I'm not going to have problems anymore. It's going to be awesome and easy. 
and that's why I'm going to follow Jesus. But Paul corrects them. They had this understanding that Paul must not be a very good apostle. Apostle just means missionary or sent one. They're thinking Paul must not be very good at this because he, he's not a good speaker. He doesn't have the wisdom of the world. He, he's kind of weird, kind of out there. He's experiencing all kinds of abuse, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of persecution. And in their mind, they're thinking something must be wrong with him because following Jesus, it's easy. It, it's, we shouldn't experience this hardship and this difficulty and this persecution. And Paul in his ever so slightly or blatant uh, sarcasm, corrects them in this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 8. This is what Paul is saying to the church there in Corinth. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with their own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I mean, this is incredible what Paul's writing. He, he's being very blunt with them and very firm with them. And he's saying, listen, guys, I'm writing these things to you because I'm not, I'm not trying to heap shame on you or condemnation on you. He's saying, I want to correct you. You're believing some things that are wrong and are untrue and are harmful. Out of my love for you as a spiritual father, I want to correct some of this stuff so that you can understand what is right so that when persecution and suffering and those things come, they'll be able to withstand those things. And he's saying, listen guys, you, you guys think you're kings already. You think that you've already begun to reign. And they had a misunderstanding of God's kingdom and God's kingship. You see, Jesus comes announcing a new kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is at hand, which just means God's kingship, his rulership, his authority, his dominion has come to earth. And Jesus not only proclaims it, but he demonstrates it. And he invites people to bow the knee of their heart to himself as king, and they could enter then into this kingdom where they could be delivered and rescued from this dominion of darkness, which leads to death, which leads to separation from God. He not only invites them out of that, but he invites them into a new kingdom of life, of fullness, of peace, into this, uh, to this kingdom that is everlasting. But they had this understanding, thinking, oh great, we follow Jesus, piece of cake, we're going to rule and reign now, and things are going to be no problem. But the, the reality is they had a misunderstanding, because the, the fullness of the kingdom, we get to experience this kingdom in part now. We see it happen all the time, when people come to know the Lord, when justice moves forward when righteousness moves forward when 
deliverance, healing, wholeness, restoration, when those things move forward, we see God's kingdom expand. God's reign and God's rule expand. But there is an active enemy who is part of a different kingdom who is actively opposed against us. That is the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness. He wants nothing more than to destroy those that are part of the kingdom of light. The hope that we have in the gospel is that though we face this battle now, there will be a day when our true and rightful king will come back. And when King Jesus comes back, he is going to establish the fullness of his kingdom and his kingship. And he's going to wipe away the kingdom of darkness and completely destroy those who are part of it. All the sickness, disease, wickedness, evil, violence, disgusting stuff, just the horrible, rotten, nasty things and persecution will be completely destroyed when Jesus Christ returns. The hope we have as believers in Jesus Christ is not that our citizenship is here on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we await from there the hope that Jesus will one day return. Now, in the meantime, it can get really confusing because we're like, yes, we're sons of God. Yes, we're prince and princesses in the kingdom. Yes, we have authority and power. Yes, we're commissioned to go out and proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. But the reality is when we are rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light and we are now part of the kingdom of light, advancing and proclaiming that kingdom, we have an active enemy who wants to oppose us and who wants to destroy us. That's where persecution comes in. Persecution, I, I love the way actually Nick Ripkin, who this, uh, this movie is based around his work, um, he defines persecution in this way. He says, persecution, this is like a rough definition of, him, of his, persecution is the oppression, the killing, the silencing or, uh, of believers, the, the pushing down, the harming, the harassing of Christians for the sake of silencing them. The purpose of persecution is to silence people so that there is no longer access to Jesus. That's the point. And oftentimes, if we let it, it can be effective. But what we see throughout the world is that actually it does the exact opposite. Oftentimes in places in the world where there's persecution, the church flourishes and it grows. I think sometimes the temptation when we read this though is like, okay, Paul, you're kind of crazy. You're a little bit out there. Maybe persecution is just for uh, like really spiritual people or like missionaries or like, yeah, occasional Christians. But Paul actually addresses this idea that persecution may be just for a few of us. And he says this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. He says, you, however, this is... Paul writing this, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfast. Pause for a second. He's saying, guys, I've taught you all these things. I've modeled all these things for you that you've tried to mimic and follow in me as I follow Christ, a, a godly life, patience, perseverance, all of these, these good qualities. They're saying, you guys, are you're following me, and you should model these things as I or, uh, uh, attempt to do these things if I model them for you as I follow Christ. But then he goes on and says some other things that they should expect as well and try to follow. In verse 11, it says, my persecutions and my sufferings. That happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. 
Indeed, all, get this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He's saying this isn't for a few people, a select group of people. And in fact, I think he's saying here is people go get worse and worse. As our culture and society and the world gets more evil and more evil, more wicked and more wicked. Which as you look around, it seems to be pretty clear that things are getting worse and worse. And I believe the reason why things are getting worse and worse is because the kingdom of God continues to go forth at an accelerated rate. That the good news of the gospel goes forth in word and in deed. And the enemy is not happy with that. Therefore, he is ramping up his opposition to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to try to silence it. That wickedness and evil continue to go uh, ramp up at an increasing rate. And he says, not super spiritual people, not just missionaries, but he says, all people who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus says this too, as they've hated me, so they'll hate you. First John says, do not be surprised when the world hates you. If we're going to live the way of Jesus, we should not only expect the blessings Jesus received, we should also expect the persecution and the suffering Jesus received as well. Because if we're going to go forth, living a life of following Jesus, we should expect persecution. Now, you can avoid persecution, I'll tell you that. You can absolutely avoid persecution. And the way that you avoid persecution is that you avoid obedience. Obedience leads to persecution. Now, okay, I talk about persecution, especially when I tell stories of like horrific things happening, happening overseas. Sometimes it's easy to say like, well, okay, we don't experience that, therefore we don't experience persecution. Persecution comes in a variety of different ways with the same end goal of silencing us. Is it comes through, yes, physical abuse, murder, absolutely. But persecution can also just come through harassment, being called names, being rejected, being left out, being made fun of. No, that isn't to the same level of persecution that our brothers and sisters are facing overseas. And I don't want to say, oh, when someone makes fun of me, it's the same as my children being put into a bread need machine. No. But I don't want to negate that we should expect to experience a level of persecution on our own. And think about it, how often does it work? How often are we afraid to share the gospel because we're afraid of how someone's gonna receive it? That success and persecution if it silences us. How often are we afraid to stand up and walk a godly and righteous life in the midst of uh, ungodly action because we're afraid of people will call us out? Some of you, that's the case, right? God has, God has rescued you. God's delivered you from the dominion of darkness. He's rescued you from a group of people that led you down a path of sin and wickedness. And when God's called you out of that, all of a sudden they notice now you're not participating in the wickedness and evil. And all of a sudden they see you walking in a way that's completely contrary to their value system. And they make fun of you oftentimes and call you foolish. But the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul says here, it is true. When we follow the way of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 4, when we walk in what is right, when we walk in obedience to what God wants of us, it is foolishness to the world. It is foolishness for the sake of Christ. Now, one thing I do want to say. Sometimes we call things persecution that are absolutely not persecution. 1 Corinthians 4 says, Paul goes, I am a fool for Christ. Sometimes you receive persecution simply because you're being a fool. Right? 
In two ways, I think that gets played out. Some of you are simply experiencing the consequences of your sinful actions. Sometimes we experience the consequence of our choices. We experience the consequence of our sin. And we're like, oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you're being dumb and you're feeling the effects of it, right? <laughs> Let's not cheapen the persecution our brothers and sisters face by calling our sinful uh, actions persecution. Sometimes we are just unwise and then we bring on persecution that is completely unnecessary. Jesus never tells us to go seek out persecution. Go find ways to be persecuted. Make sure you're persecuted. He simply says, you will be persecuted. Walking in obedience leads to persecution. But therefore, I think we should be wise. That we should not be harsh with our words. Sometimes if you're just a jerk and talking to someone about Jesus, you're going to be persecuted, not for the message of the gospel. You're going to be persecuted because you're a jerk. That we would be wise and in step with the Holy Spirit and doing what he tells us to do. And it will, yes, it'll lead to rejection. It'll lead to hardship. It'll lead to persecution. But let's make sure that it is because that we bring fools for Christ, not just simply fools. Persecution, like I said, is designed to silence us. And, and we have a choice. Are we going to partner with the enemy and be silent? Are we going to partner with the Lord and continue to be steadfast and firm and bold in obedience and in righteousness in the proclamation of the gospel? And one of my favorite stories and examples of this is in Acts chapter 5. Peter and some of the apostles are going out and sharing the gospel and they face persecution as they do so. Let's look at this. Acts 5, 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. That's Jesus' name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, apostles answered We must obey God rather than men. No matter our circumstances, no matter our situation, I think one of the uh, lessons that our persecuted brothers and sisters can teach us is we always have the freedom to walk in obedience. There's always a consequence. Sometimes the consequence is greater than another. But we always have the consequence whether to walk in obedience. And these, these guys, these apostles, are facing threats. They're being told to be quiet and stop preaching the gospel. There are going to be consequences. And their response was, yeah, we have chosen that we are going to obey God rather than you. Then he goes on, and we pick up the story. Right after this, he shares the gospel. He doesn't waste any time. He shares the gospel with them again. And then down to verse 40 of Acts chapter 5. When they, called, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They went out after they're told not to. They go out and share the gospel even more. They're arrested again. They're threatened. They're beaten. They're abused. And they're told, don't share this anymore. And they left from freshly being beaten. Their response wasn't, ooh, we should stop doing that. Or, ooh, I'm not sure Jesus is worth it. Their response after being beaten up was, oh, that we are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. 
And they walked out of there refusing to give in to the silencing uh, that was to be placed upon them. And it says they went day by day, house to house, and they never stopped preaching the gospel. I think for us, we easily get caught up in our circumstances and situations that we're not prepared to face any kind of persecution. Like what's amazing to me is our brothers and sisters around the world ask us to support them. The thing that they ask us most to do is to pray for them. They don't ask that the persecution would stop. They don't ask that we would pray that the persecution would stop. They ask that they would pray for the salvation of their persecutor and that they would have an endurance to stand firm in the midst of the persecution. I believe the, what they can teach us in that is that they understand that their hope is not in this world. Their hope is in the one who is eternal. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. We'll start in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of, witness, cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Sometimes that endurance is difficult when there's persecution. And he says, this is what we do then. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such great hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's saying, you want to know how to endure? You want to know how to be steadfast in the midst of persecution? You want to know how to be steadfast when things get difficult? That we would fix our gaze upon Jesus and remember what he has done for us. That Jesus, he endured to the point of death. Jesus, he endured suffering for us. Look at the cost of what Jesus was willing to pay on our behalf. When we fixed our eyes upon Jesus, then that sets our heart upon the one who is worthy to give it all. It also helps reorient our heart and our mind to the very temporal nature in the world in which we live. I mean, honestly, when I think about persecution, I, I think about how horrible and how hard it would be to give up so many of the things that I have. My possessions, my home, even things more, even things more dear to my heart. Like, I hear stories about it's hard as a dad, right? You hear stories about what these children go through, what dads have to watch their kids go through for the sake of the gospel, not to put myself in that, in that position. And to say, am I willing to give those things up? Do I love Jesus more than I love my family? Would I be willing to be steadfast if my kids were murdered in front of me for the sake of the gospel? And if my answer is yes, how much then should I be willing to go through the daily rejection of the gospel for the sake of his great name? But so often I get consumed with the things of this world and I, and I fail to recognize and remember like this world, our life is just a momentary blip on the radar. I mean, Paul says this in uh, 
2 Corinthians 4, 17. And he says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I mean, Paul's a guy that didn't go through just a little bit of suffering. Later in 2 Corinthians, he talks about all the times he was beaten, how he was stoned, how he was shipwrecked, how he was hungry oftentimes, how he didn't have a place to stay or he didn't have enough clothes. All of these things, he continued to talk about how he was suffering. And he said, but in the light of eternity, in the gazing upon the face of the one true king, whose kingdom is not temporary but eternal, he says, those things mean nothing. Those things are so fleeting that those are easy to endure when our eyes are upon the one who will reign forever and ever and here's the thing so oftentimes as Christians I'm amazed at how quickly we walk in fear we put our hope in things that are temporal all the time we put our hope in the kingdom of this world all the time and when it's threatened to be taken away, we freak out, we panic, and we hold tightly to those things rather than fixing our gaze upon the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is the true and rightful king, the one who will come back and restore all things. We have an election coming up on Tuesday, in case you haven't heard about that, right? <laughs> trying to say this gracefully and not be political we need a lot of wisdom and I'll tell you who to vote for and that's who God tells you to vote for you should vote for that person but let us keep in mind I think something we can learn from our persecuted brothers and sisters who are part of all kind of governmental systems throughout the world when we vote this week and that is the kingdom of this, these, this world, all the kingdoms of this world, that includes the kingdom of America, will rise and fall. And our hope is not placed in a man or a woman. Our hope is not placed in a president or who is elected and who is not. Our hope is not placed in one kingdom on this earth or another because our hope is found in the king of the universe who is stable and unchanging, who is the only one worthy of, of our hope and promise. And here's the thing, one of my friends reminded me of this week, he said, no matter who becomes president, this go-round or the next one or the next one, it does not change our mandate to walk in obedience to what God calls us to. She said that, I was like, oh, that's good. Right? But I can get so caught up in the temporal things, and I'm not saying it's not important. Vote, do your homework, do that, great. But at the end of the day, our citizenship is not in this world. It is ultimately in heaven. And therefore, when our mind is fixed there, we can go through all kinds of suffering, all kinds of persecution, all kinds of ridicule, all kinds of rejection because we know where our hope is found. And, and that's why I continue to be in awe of our brothers and sisters that face intense persecution around the world because they suffer with such joy. They suffer with such endurance they suffer, and just as Tony said earlier, why we should care for the persecuted church around the world is because it says later on in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12, is one part of the body suffers, so we all suffer. They suffer, so today we suffer with them. And it's hard because it's like, well, what do we do? As I said earlier, one of the greatest things I think we can do is we can pray for them. I think sometimes we underestimate the power of prayer 
But that's what Paul tells them to do. Is Paul's in prison for uh, Philippians chapter one. Paul's in prison, and this is what he tells them to do when he's experiencing persecution and suffering and imprisonment. Paul says this, Philippians chapter one, verse nineteen. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's saying, guys, I'm in prison, and, and what's gotten me through this is your prayer as well as the Holy Spirit. Our prayer for the persecuted church has power because we are in the middle of a war zone, and there's an active enemy who's fighting against the believers in the kingdom of light, and that is the kingdom of darkness. But we are told we wage war not as the world wages war. ISIS is not our ultimate enemy. People of other religions are not our enemy. Our enemy is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and rulers of this dark world. Therefore, we fight, not according to the way the world fights, but we fight in the spirit. We fight in prayer. That when God brings to mind the plight of our brothers and sisters that are suffering around the world, that when we pray, it's not simply a matter of going, Oh, I feel bad, so I should say a prayer so that I feel bad. No, that in our prayer there is power, that we would pray that they would endure. We would pray that they'd have boldness, that they have prayer for their persecutors, that they come to know the Lord, that we pray for the coming of our Lord Jesus because ultimately we long for the return of our true and rightful king that establishes his kingdom forever and ever because that's where our hope lies. One last thought. It's hard for me not to become apathetic for the persecuted church, if I'm honest. I wish it wasn't the case. I wish I wasn't so consumed with my own stuff, but often I am. When I found one of the ways that I can continue to have a mind and a heart for the persecuted church is to read articles online of what's going on with the church worldwide. But the other way I found is that when I walk in obedience and I've experienced such a small sliver of persecution and it doesn't compare to my brothers and sisters worldwide, but when I experience a small sliver of persecution, of rejection, of abuse, of mockery, it begins to change my heart on a small level and say, ah, how much more my brothers and sisters are willing to endure for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ that it spurs me on to walk in obedience no matter the cost because as they remind me for what they're willing to endure is that Jesus is worth it all. He is worth it all. This morning we talk about the persecuted church not to make you feel all guilty, not to make you feel all bad, but to spur us on to spur us on to walking in obedience to the cost and to spur us on to remember our brothers and sisters who are suffering greatly, that we would join them in prayer. And I like what Margaret and Tony said, not praying for them, but to pray with them for the things that they've called us to pray for. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite Tony and Margaret up and we're going to actually pray for the persecuted church together. So let's pray.
God, I first ask for forgiveness because I don't often suffer with those who suffer. I've often neglected and forgotten um, those that are suffering worldwide. But God, we thank you for the reminder that you're worth it. We thank you that you've rescued us out of the dominion of darkness. You brought us in the kingdom of light. We thank you for the promise, Jesus, that you're going to one day return. And until that day happens, God, would you continue to give us grace to fight each day, continue to stand faithfully, continue to remember our brothers and sisters. God, that our eyes would be fixed firmly upon you, upon the eternal king, the eternal one, and not on the temporal nature of this world or the things that so easily entangle us and bog us down. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.